Thank you, Andrea. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for indulging me in moving forward. I feel much better. And, I, you know, last week we talked about breaking habits. And I think this is one of the ways that we do that, is we break the habit of sitting in the back so that the speaker feels better. So thank you. Um, tonight, uh, I want to talk about another kind of habit, one that leads the disciples to ask a question that I, I think Jesus really has mixed feelings about. They ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <clears throat> and we have this strange obsession, I think, with being great. I know for certain that firstborns do, or at least my firstborn. My daughter, uh, we were recently at a <clears throat> uh, pumpkin patch, and it just seemed like everywhere she went to play, she had to be on top of something. She stood on top of things. In fact, she climbed to the top of a hay pile. And I have a picture of her. Now, she's a diminutive five-and-a-half-year-old, but still, she was standing like this with her chest puffed out. And I have this great picture of a blue sky behind her with her pumpkin shirt on. She just loves to be important. She loves to be great. And so do I. Can I tell you about my, uh, what, 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 what do I call them, delusions of grandeur? Mine come usually in the shower. I don't know when you, you have yours, but mine's in the shower, and, and in my mind's eye, I'm, I'm standing there before a hundred-member choir, and I'm conducting the gospel choir. The sopranos are over here, and the basses are here, and they're singing in perfect harmony, and the rhythms are tight and all that, you know. And I do it because, man, I, I want to be the one controlling a hundred people and what they're doing. I have other, other delusions as well. They're all tied to my hobbies. I want to be a great woodcarver, and I know that will never happen. But I want to be great. And I think some of you do too. There are at least 12 others who are with me. They wanted to know who was great in the kingdom of heaven. And what this passage shows us is that there are two kinds of greatness. The first kind is a self-seeking greatness, one that exalts oneself. And then the other kind, of course, is an other-centered greatness, one that seeks the greatness of others. And the teaching, consistent teaching of the scriptures has always been that when you seek the greatness of others, there you find greatness yourself. Well, Tonight's passage, I think, is a very interesting one. I think it's actually very difficult as well. And, Andrea, I'm going to put you to the test, if you don't mind, because, as these folks have learned, I like to, as they say, nerd it up. Okay, so we'll be doing a little Greek. We'll be doing a little grammar. All right, and I'm going to be watching you, and I, I'm already impressed, so we'll see how that goes. The first thing. All right, you ready? Okay, the first thing. Look at the text with me. Let's throw it back up there. And you don't have verse numbers, but you see what it says. Right after the disciples ask a question, Jesus creates an object lesson. He says, he calls a little child to him. And you know how difficult this is, or at least I know how difficult this is, because when you say, come here, buddy, come here, right? Like you, you're talking to a two-year-old and you just want him to come and stand in your midst. At least my son, he just goes like this. So, so that he doesn't come. But 
I believe that Jesus was charismatic. I don't know what he looked like, but I believe that there was something to be attracted to when it comes to Jesus and that the children came to him because they felt safe with him. So he calls a little child to him. Now this term, little child, this is our first stop on the way to nerddom. There are technical terms for different kinds of children. The generic term is pice. Okay, pice. It's like the word chico. It means child. It's a generic term. But there is a more specific term, like chiquito, little child, right? That designates what age of child you're really talking about. And the word here is paideon. So not pais, but paideon, which, when you look at the usage of that term, involves any child from age zero to seven. We're talking about a young child here. He calls them over, puts them in their midst, and you know what he says, become like this child. So our difficult task here at the very beginning is to figure out how do we become like children. And I want to caution us. There is a bottomless fount of error when it comes to interpreting this verse. I've seen it over and over again, people saying various things about how to be like a child. Let me tell you two ways to not become like a child. Number one, do not become innocent like a child because I know no children that are innocent. You only believe this if you've never babysat before. (laughs) All you have to do is babysit my children. Actually, sometimes we'll get reports, oh, they were wonderful, they were angelic, they were perfect, he put himself to bed, these kinds of things. But when Lisa and I are working on this, how long was the tantrum yesterday? An hour and a half? Yeah, it it was epic. It was, you know... Homer would have written something about this tantrum. It was, it was amazing. He was asked to eat one bean. One bean. And you know what he says to us? He looks us in the face. And he says, no. So he got a timeout. And when he came back, to make it up to us, his task was to eat a morsel of chicken. No. Children, my friends, they are not innocent. I defy you to prove me wrong. Okay, the second way not to become like a child. It is often said that to become like a child, we have to have an unquestioning, childlike faith. Brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how damaging this has been to so many questioning, skeptical students who come and talk to me college students, high school students, what we know now is that we must make ample room for questions and doubt and to treat those with all seriousness. In fact, we know later on that Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians to move beyond the faith of a paideon, to move toward adulthood with your faith. So it's not about being unquestioning because when my students are told Just have faith. Those are the ones who come into my office and say to me, I'm losing my faith because it seems that there are no answers for my questions. It's not about being unquestioning. It's about something quite different. We're almost there. We're going to talk about what that means. But before we get there, we're going to do a little bit more Greek. Okay? All right. So there's a word here. I'm looking at it. 
He said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want to dwell on that word change. It's actually a passive verb. There, all right. It's actually a passive verb, which means that something happens to you. It's not something that you do. And you know this, right? It's so hard to change yourself. It's so hard to turn and to be changed. And in another translation, to be converted, right? This is something that God does to you as if He takes you like He has taken the little child. And He turns you to make you face the direction that you're supposed to go. And he says, unless you change, unless you are changed by something or someone, then you'll never enter into the kingdom of God. And secondly, he says, become like little children. But let's go to the next slide. Let's see what's there. Takes the lowly position like a child. Now, we have to figure out what that means because this is where we talk about becoming humble. This verb is actually in the future tense. So it's whoever will become humble or whoever, whoever will humble himself or become lowly. What does this mean? Well, we know that children at the time were completely overlooked and completely undervalued. Now, it was true for especially Jewish folks that they genuinely loved their children because they were always taught, as we have been, that children are a gift from the Lord. In the Greek and Roman culture, however, it was the case that, like in so many countries, girls were just given up because of a preference for males. And especially children who were born with disabilities were given up without any scruples. I mean, this was a part of the culture that was rampant at the time. And Jesus says, become like this child. Not any child, not children in general, but he uses the near demonstrative, which means this one right here, the one that's in our midst. You see, Mel points something out to me earlier. This child right here in the middle, I'm sure wide-eyed, what's going on? Why are all these adults talking to me? He was listening in. And Jesus was saying to him, become, he was wondering, this child, he or she, was wondering to him or herself, become like me? I have no idea what he was processing, but I know that the crowd was astonished. Become like a child. How do I do that? He gives us an instruction in verse 5 when he says, whoever welcomes a little child like this, this one, in my name, welcomes me. He said this once before. When he sends out the disciples to preach the gospel, he says, whoever receives the message, stay with them, because they're receiving me. You see the connection, right? If you receive the messenger, that that means that you agree with the message, which means that you you agree with the one who sent the message. Here, it's it's very, very similar. If you receive the child, then you have understood the priorities of the kingdom of heaven, The ones who are overlooked, they are the ones that you will receive. And Jesus says, if that's you, then you're a part of this kingdom of heaven. You want to enter it? You take up the cause of the overlooked. You become like me, one who brings a child into his midst, pays that kind of attention to him. That's how you become humble. You take up the cause of the humble. And as he says this, he begins to remind us 
of what he used to say in Matthew chapter 5. His debut sermon, you remember that from last week, right? His debut sermon, he begins to remind us of what he has said in the next verses. The ones that didn't get read, so I don't know if they're on the slide, but I'll read them to you. It's verses 6 through uh, 9. And this is what the Word of God says. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world! Because of the things that cause people to sin, such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. You remember those words, right? Where Annie was telling us, Pastor Annie, who's around here somewhere, right there, was telling us how grave a situation we're in. And the summary, if I could give one, in fact, I think the entire ethic of the Sermon on the Mount, at least that section, the one thing that I hope you never forget is that it is better to cut yourself apart than for you to cut someone else out of the kingdom of heaven. Can I say that again? It is better for you to cut yourself apart than to cut someone else off from entering into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus uses this word for it. Scandalizo. Yeah, scandalizo. From which we get scandalized, right? And in our parlance, what that means is when you scandalize someone, it's like you make them go, (gasps) you freak them out. You do something so revulsive or strange that they're scandalized. They just don't know what to do. It's shocking. But that actually has lost some of the force of what it used to mean in the Greek text. Scandalize or scandalizo here. Here's the way I think about it. You see, the way he used it here is cause someone to sin or tempt someone to sin. And your hand can even do that or your eye can even do that. And what that means is basically to lead someone astray. And I think there's a helpful image that my kids will illustrate. When my son was born, our daughter was in love with him. So much so so intensely that we had to restrain her from hugging him too violently. She would tremble with love, sticking her face into his and almost smothering him. That's brotherly, sisterly love, isn't it? But that transformed over time. She still loved him. And as he began to, learn, began to learn to walk, he would be passing by her on the way to something that he loved, perhaps mommy. And as a means of reaching out and touching him just to love him, she used her longest limbs. You know which ones those are. These. So here he comes running by, mommy, whoop! And he would fall face flat, having been tripped by my daughter. Over and over again, we had to keep saying to her, don't trip Jesse. Don't trip Jesse. We know you love him, but don't trip him. This is what scandalizo means. Let me explain. Jesus says, 
as people reach out for the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, you dare not trip them on their way by causing them to go astray, by tempting them to sin, by telling them that they can't enter the Kingdom of Heaven, by neglecting them, by overlooking them, by segregating them out. You dare not do this. I have to say it one more time. In the family of God, we don't trip each other as we reach out together for the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. This is not what we do. So he takes us back to the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you know what? This is how severe it is. This is how important this is. That we include the ones that Jesus has said belong in the kingdom. Some people love to focus on who is out of the kingdom. And Jesus says, you know what? Right now, let's talk about who's in. I don't know which way you are. I suspect you're actually the the latter, that we love to talk about who's in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He says, children are in. This child is in. And so you dare not trip him up. The words here... And I think the words in the entire Sermon on the Mount demand that we think about who's in. So that Psalm 139 is an opportunity for us to examine ourselves on this issue. Right? See, I have to change the way that I preach here versus other services because in other services, children are absent for one particular reason. Here, they're absent for another particular reason. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. I think Psalm 139 is an opportunity for you to examine why it is that there are so few children here. It's a hard question to ask ourselves. Because Psalm 139 says, see if there's any error in us. Show us the wicked way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. Come, search us. We invite God to search us, to ask ourselves questions, because... The difficulty is, as I preach this, many of you are saying, absolutely, yes. You believe that. You love children. And still, somehow, they're absent here. So we invite the Word to scrutinize us. We invite the Spirit to scrutinize us, to show us if there's any wicked way in us and show us in the way everlasting. So tonight... Let the Word of God ask you, who around you is reaching out for the King of the Kingdom of Heaven? Have you turned? Have you changed? Have you been changed by Him so that you would take up their cause? Because this is what He says in verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in Heaven... Let me say that again. For their angels in Heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. This is one of the strangest things that I've read in a long time. There's a whole theology out there about guardian angels that he might be accessing. I'm not sure about that, but what I know for sure is that Jesus is saying that the Father hears about the plight of those who are overlooked. They are always being talked about there in the throne room of the kingdom of heaven. So We dare not overlook them because their cause is being heard. A trial is taking place and questions are being asked about this gathering of people. Even the angels, their angels, take up their cause before our Heavenly Father. 
And so Jesus begins to tell this parable about what this is like. Who else takes up the cause of the overlooked? Well, Jesus himself, you have this story about sheep. Where the shepherd should have stayed with the 99. Now, there are some commentators who would say, well, maybe he had a hired hand. And so it was easy for him to leave and go on a rescue mission. I don't know if that's true or not. That dilutes the point of the story that Jesus goes after the one who went astray. He could have stayed with the 99 because there is where his livelihood could have been. But he cared so much that he would rejoice greatly over finding the one. What's clear to me is that God has always been on a mission for that stray lamb. The one who is leaving the flock. The one who's out there lost. God's been on a mission for that one. Which is why I'm confused about why most of your versions omit verse 11. It's, I don't think it's up there at all. But most of you have a footnote in your Bibles that says verse 11, which has been cut out, is that the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. It certainly wouldn't hurt to put it back in because we know this to be true, that the Father has always been about the ones who've been lost. Albert's favorite sermon, I think, sometimes is the parable of the older brother or the, the lost brother or the prodigal son or the, the loving father, which, whichever way you take it. God has always been on a mission for that lost one. And so, having learned Three things, I think, about children. We move to application. Here are the three things. In verses 1 through 5, I think we learn that Jesus tells us we are to become like them, to be humble, to take up their cause. The second one is a strange lesson, a very simple one, though. Don't trip kids. We don't trip people up on their way to the kingdom of heaven. And the third one is like it. You see, there's a difference between passive and active tripping, right? Now let's get technical. Passive and active tripping. Passive, uh, active tripping is where you stick your leg out. And I don't know that many of you are guilty of active tripping, right? But there's also passive tripping. You see in this last section of the text, Jesus says very clearly, the mission has always been, go get you some children. Go get some lost sheep. Be on the same mission that my Father has always been on. Go get the children that are wandering from the flock. Because if you don't, that's passive tripping. That's a failure. It's a sin of omission. Leaving out that which God loves. Those are the ones which we can say, my hands are clean. Because I haven't done anything. But that's exactly the problem. I haven't done anything. You see the problem, right? There's two kinds of blocking, two kinds of tripping, passive and active. So become like children. Don't trip children, but go get you some children. And here's how I think we do this. We take some time to take a look at who in our communities are overlooked and undervalued. And there are myriad places to point. Just too many to even mention, but I, I need to mention just a few. My very own children. When I'm not the father that I'm supposed to be, when the father that God asks me to be, my children are overlooked and undervalued. 
The children of northwest Pasadena, where our church is located, when there aren't enough tutors to say visibly that we love you, the children and families of northwest Pasadena are overlooked and undervalued. My neighbors in Monrovia, when I fail to faithfully share the gospel with them, I overlook them and undervalue them, even though I know that in their very heart they reach out for the king of the kingdom of heaven who they do not know. There are many places to point our fingers, but this weekend we take some very appropriate time to provide some much-needed teaching and attention to disability. I've been calling around all week. I've been asking for help because I'm very unqualified to preach this text, and so I tremble before you and before God as I talk about the applications to disability. And as I've called around, one thing has become clear to me. There are so many strong opinions about disability among people with disabilities and among people who work with people with disabilities. What they've taught me is that there are so many wrong, violently wrong ways to take this text And in fact, some of them are so wrong that I won't even mention them to you lest I make them real in your head. So let me tell you about the very few ways that I think this text ought to be applied. I think there are basically four. The first has to do with becoming humble and growing hospitality. Basically, this means that we take up the cause of others whose cause we've never even considered. Think about the definition... Uh, the definition of disability for a second. This was really fascinating as I was calling around and asking and researching. The two I want to highlight for you are, the first one is the, the American with Disabilities Act. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Disability means having a physical or mental limitation. Very straightforward. And there are many definitions like it that just have to do with limitations and restrictions. But then... I looked up another definition, one that's a little bit more global. I actually looked up the World Health Organization's definition of disability, and it said, you know what? It's not just about physical and mental limitations and restrictions, but it's the intersection of those limitations and restrictions and the societies in which we live. Let me illustrate what I mean. I called one friend, a former student of ours, and she said something profound to me. She said, where I live, every building that I go into is accessible. I don't feel disabled at all. I get around very easily. But when I go abroad to certain countries, then I know that I'm disabled. You see, it all depends on how the society treats or doesn't treat people with physical limitations and restrictions. So this is about hospitality. Are we considering the cause of others? Are we taking up their cause? Are we concerned... Are we spending time, energy, talents, and treasure on the cause that comes before our Father in Heaven? Are we? The second lesson. We've got to stop asking who's out of the Kingdom of Heaven. Now, there is one thing that I said before. That we do need to move beyond the simplicity of faith of a paideon and move toward a mature and complete faith in Christ. But I was uh, at Forest Home one time talking with some newly minted college staff workers, pastors at a church. 
And they asked for prayer for some of their students. And they said about these students, we really want you to pray that they would get it. Because, and here's what they said, they think they get it. And by it they mean the gospel and all of its implications. They think they get it, but they really don't get it. Do you see what's happening there? We begin to build all these qualifications for who gets it, for who's in, for what it takes to be a true Christian. I think sometimes we do need to think hard about what mature faith looks like, but we don't build barriers to the kingdom of heaven. I'm not sure which one they were doing, because I don't know their students. But we think about what it takes to be in the kingdom of heaven. What is that which it takes? What is it? I think it's one thing. And Jesus says it. He goes like this. This child. This child's in the kingdom of heaven. It is Jesus' declaration that you belong to him that makes you his. There are so many things that we could say about what makes you a Christian or what puts you in the kingdom of heaven, but one thing I'm sure of, it is Jesus' declaration that I am his that makes me his. And that's true for you too. Who's in? He or she who Jesus says is in. The third lesson. Because it's about who's in, this text especially, we must be mindful of an us and them mentality. Unless you have a family member with disability, or unless you're dealing with a disability yourself, you are likely to be inclined to think, well, there's us who do not have disabilities, and there's them who do. This is what the church is good for. I really believe this. This is what the church is good for because in the church, we're in us. This is why I have you move toward the front of the church because when you're way back there so that you're anonymous, you're a them to me and I'm a them to you. But when we sit together, we're in us. This is a habit we need to practice. This is a habit we need to break so that we can be in us together. We must be mindful of the us-them mentality And the last lesson is an implication of that. In order to become an us, we have to get to know each other. At the end of the service, you're going to have an opportunity to meet some of our Beyond Barriers ministry team members and other folks in in the uh, community of people with disabilities. And I need to tell you a story about this. When I was a student, an idealistic and naive college student at the University of Michigan, I was walking alone on a Saturday night, which we're always told not to do, Saturday nights are party nights and there's all kinds of crazy things going on. And I was walking behind on South University, a man who was having incredible difficulty walking. And being the naive and somewhat noble-minded student that I was, I walked up alongside him and I said to him, to my shame, it's hard to even spit the words out, I said to him, had a little bit too much to drink? He looked at me as I caught up with him, finally. And I looked him in the face, and he looked me in the face, and he said, get away from me. I've had nothing to drink. You see, he was dealing with a physical limitation. And because of that interaction, my deep shame for making that mistake, I was way less inclined to talk to anyone 
who was dealing with physical limitations or restrictions. I just became so afraid of offending. You know what that's like, don't you? This is why we avoid conversations about politics at the dinner table. And there's one thing that I think is interesting about Pastor Greg and my relationship. He, he, he jokingly and lovingly says to me that I represent all Asians in the world. <laughs> because I'm on staff, I see him on a regular basis, and so naturally I become the voice of Asian Americans everywhere. This is a heavy burden. And it's true. Many people treat me that way as well. They come asking me all kinds of inappropriate questions. <laughs> like, what's it like to be Vietnamese? Which I'm not. <laughs> or, do all Japanese people blank? And I, I'm, I don't know. And I would never start a sentence that way. <laughs> you know, things like this. But when we have a group of folks from our Beyond Bears ministry here. They're the ones who've chosen, like me, gladly, lovingly, to say, yes, I will represent a group of people. I may not know all the answers. In fact, you need to know that. But neither should you be afraid. Because if you're afraid to come talk to me about our distinctives, the things that make us different, our vastly different experiences, if you're afraid to talk about those things, we will never be an us. We will never be an us. God forbid. So, I know that very few of you are inclined to come forward at the end of the service. But the invitation is there. Come forward to pray. Come forward to connect. Come forward to get to know us. Right? This is a habit we must develop. Don't be afraid to say dumb things. Don't be afraid to get over your own insecurities. Take the step that it requires for you to learn what it means to belong to the king of the kingdom of heaven for that to come true for all of us we must pray would you join me heavenly father we give you thanks for tonight for this amazing opportunity to talk about something that's little talked about and we pray your help lord by your holy spirit that you come and pour yourself out in this place to make us in us. So that even a watching world will say, what people is this that crosses barriers of awkwardness, that lays down its own preferences for the sake of others, that takes up plights that I would never take up. Lord, make us that people who displays Your wisdom before the world so that a watching world who does not know how to be united, Lord, that it would know You are God. We pray this for your glory in all the nations. We pray this for your peace in our congregation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.